Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Zikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikaway. Uh Today is Sunday, February the 5th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the response of the People's Republic of China to the downing of a weather balloon, uh, which flew off course in the United States. The Ethiopian Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, has held a meeting to facilitate the further implementation of the Pretoria peace deal. Soldiers uh, serving in the Somalian peacekeeping force have not been paid from funds allocated by the European Union. And there has been a meeting of the East Africa community on the current security situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In the second and third hours, we continue our commemoration of African American History Month. We listen to an interview with scholar Dr. W.B. Du Bois uh, on the origins of Pan-Africanism. We then review an interview uh, with Dr. Herbert Apdecker, the literary executor of Dr. Du Bois. Finally, we listen to a rare archival lecture by Shirley Graham Du Bois, the second wife of uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois. This lecture was delivered at the University of California at Los Angeles in October of 1970. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude, and we'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Yo, 
Tene wate pola yoyo go 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 Wa peshka do tina mwenena Kana kansomo Kana kansomo Kana kansomo Kana kansomo Wa peshka do tina mwenena Wa peshka do tina mwenena
And uh, as we mentioned earlier, the Chinese uh, foreign minister uh, expressed strong dissatisfaction and protested against the U.S. use of force to shoot down a Chinese civilian unmanned airship, urging the United States to properly handle the incident. The Chinese side has verified the situation and communicated with the U.S. side multiple times, saying the unintended entry of the airship into U.S. airspace was due to force majeure, and the incident was totally an accident, the ministry said. The U.S. military yesterday, a local time, shot down an unsuspected Chinese spy balloon off the Carolina coast following authorization of the Biden administration after the airship has been flying over the U.S. for days. The action was hailed by the U.S. president as a success, according to the U.S. media reports. The balloon episode went viral on the U.S. social media. A number of U.S. hawks on China-related matters have been hyping the use of a balloon for spying purposes and deliberately distorted it as a direct assault on the U.S. national sovereignty. And uh, the use, the U.S. attack on Chinese civilian unmanned airships by force is an obvious overreaction. That's according to the senior Colonel Tan Kifei, a spokesperson at the China's Ministry of National Defense. He said that in a statement uh, earlier today. And in other news uh, taking place uh, in the Horn of Africa, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed met for the first time with members of Pretoria's Peace Agreement Implementation Coordination Committee. As a matter of fact, in the course of the discussion and evaluation on the subject of the ongoing implementation of the peace agreement has been carried out. Now, this is according to a report from the Ethiopian Herald. Prime Minister Abiy has met with members of the federal government and the TPLF Peace Talks Committee. The Prime Minister held this face-to-face discussion at the Alala Kela cluster section of the Koshaden project in the Dararu zone of southern Ethiopia. The premier was convened a the, the premier has convened a discussion with members of the peace agreement implementation coordination committee uh, for the very first time. During the discussion, the ongoing implementation of the peace agreement was evaluated and directions have also been put forward on issues requiring further attention. Both parties expressed confidence and trust in implementing the peace accord while vowing to do their level best to work on certain issues. The meeting is said to cultivate trust between the parties to a peace deal. Previously, the Ethiopian government and the TPLF met in South Africa and Kenya. The strings of discussion served as trust-building mechanisms paving the way for the full implementation of the peace pact on Friday. The meeting uh, of the Peace Committee also reaffirmed commitment to fast delivery of humanitarian assistance to Tigray State. So far, humanitarian aid is entering Tigray via all modes of transportation. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In other news, in the Horn of Africa, uh, questions of accountability are starting to emerge as different cohorts of Uganda's military deployed for peacekeeping operations in Somalia have gone for 27 months uh, spread across five years without pay. Despite the European Union, the mission's biggest funder regularly distributing uh, 
cover allowances for at least 5,000 peacekeepers serving in the war-torn Horn of Africa state. The latest cohort uh, who returned from Somalia on December the 31st did not receive any payment uh, for all the 12 months they spent in the Horn of Africa country, while the one it replaced in November of 2021 was also not paid for nine months. Sources said that Ugandan peacekeepers in Somalia missed a chunk of their pay with each of the 1,500 soldiers identified in military parlance as a battle group missing one to three months' pay in 2020, 2019, and in 2018. A diplomat of an EU country told the East African newspaper that, quote, the problem is elsewhere, unquote, and that all money approved for Somalia had been dispersed for all the years in question. This shines a spotlight on Uganda, whose decision to leave the African fight against al-Shabaab, against their fighters in Somalia, won its respect. Uganda was the first country to have boots on the ground in 2007, and the African Union mission to Somalia, which mutated to the African Union Transition Mission in Somalia, ATMIS, in April of last year. And uh, finally, East African leaders uh, were heading to Burundi yesterday for a regional summit called to discuss the raging conflict in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The talks are being hosted in Bujumbura by the East Africa community, which is leading mediation efforts to end the resurgent fighting in the rest of East of the giant Central African nation. The agenda, the evaluation of the security situation in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, and the way forward, the East African community said on Twitter Friday that it was announcing this extraordinary summit. A Congolese presidency official said Friday that President Felix Chesekede would be attending the meeting. President Paul Kagame of Rwanda, which is accused of backing rebel groups in the East, has arrived already in Bujumbura, an airport source said with several other East Africa community heads of state also there. The meeting is being held shortly after a visit by Pope Francis uh, to Kinshasa, where he met victims of the conflict and condemned the inhuman violence and brutal atrocities taking place in the country. And with that, that we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, and research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
and see you duck, and when the smoke is cleared away, then the band will crawl from behind the stand, and then you hear me say, when I get home, I'm gonna change my lock and key. When you get home, you'll find an awful change in me. If I don't change my mind, another thing you will find that your baby maybe has got another baby on the pole line. You did your stuff, so get yourself another home. I stood it long enough, so pack your little trunk and roam. I used to love you once. But you took and made a fool out of me Oh, when I get home I'm gonna change this old lock and key Take off that suit I bought you Give me that hat and that red vest too Take off my watch Give me my ring I want them shoes and everything You just got to be the lady's squeeze Well, let them squeeze you in your BVD If you say much, I'll shoot them all. I'll shoot them all if I hear you call. Cause when I get home, I'm gonna change my lock and key. When you get home, you'll find place where home used to be. And if I don't change my mind, another thing you will find. That your baby maybe's got another baby just as good in time. You cheated on me, and that's the thing that made me so. I change that key, I'll get myself another dough. As far as my concern, you're a gypsy, you're homeless as a flea. Cause when I get home, I'm gonna change my lock and key. Believe me. The legendary uh, Bessie Smith uh, doing the track entitled Lock and Key. And uh, February is uh, African American History Month. And of course, uh, here at the Pan African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, we are dedicating uh, our programming during the month of February to uh, African history. And of course, one of the major contributors uh, to uh, African uh, studies and of course, uh, Pan-Africanism is Dr. W.B. Du Bois. And we're going to uh, listen to a statement uh, from him on his uh, intervention in the Pan-African movement. Uh, Let's listen in. And I got the idea that here was a chance to do something for Africa. I wrote to President Wilson and uh, told him that at the peace conference in Versailles they ought to take up the matter of the German colonies and since the Allies now are in charge that they ought to set those colonies up as free independent states and uh, put them under an international committee on which uh, Africans should be members. Mr. Wilson didn't answer that letter but the uh, the American committee over there considered it, and uh, out of that really came the uh, the Mandates Commission. 
On the other hand, when I got to Paris, I tried to organize a Pan-African Congress. There had been a Pan-African Conference in 1900, which I'd attended and uh, wrote the resolutions, but that had died. When I tried to organize this Pan-African Congress, I was told that Paris was under martial law and that we couldn't have anything of that sort. The Americans discouraged it. But uh, I went to the black man who was uh, instrumental in bringing something like uh, 100,000 black soldiers from Africa to help in the First World War and really turn back the Germans. And uh, Dianya went to the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister said I could have the Congress. But uh, of course the uh, America and Great Britain and so forth wouldn't allow anybody to have passports to get over there. So the Congress was rather small. We had 57 delegates, people, Negroes, who happened to be in uh, Paris at the time, a few Africans, a few Negro Americans, and some whites. We had this first Pan-African Congress in, in 1919 at the Grand Hotel. And then after the World War, in 1921, we held a much larger Congress with uh, some two or three hundred people and a good many from Africa. And that uh, aroused the colonial powers. They got very much excited because they thought I was trying to start a revolution in Africa, which I wasn't at all. What I was trying to do was to get educated Africans in various parts of the world to come together and know each other and talk with each other and see what kind of program could be laid down for the uh, future emancipation of the Africans in their own country. I was held several Pan-African Congresses after that. There were none that were as great and comprehensive as the second in 1921, but uh, there was one in uh, 1923 in which uh, uh, leading Englishman took part. That, that took place in London, Paris. And uh, in 1924, I think, in Lisbon, where we got members of the uh, Portuguese parliament and some of the colonial officials. Welcome back. And that was uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois speaking uh, on uh, his involvement in the early phase of the Pan-African movement. Uh, Dr. Herbert Aptecker, the African-American resistance historian, uh, who, of course, uh, wrote on uh, the history of American-African uh, slave revolts, was the literary executor of uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois. And uh, we're going to play excerpts uh, from an interview that we had played on an earlier program about uh, his own uh, personal development and contribution. Uh, this segment deals uh, almost exclusively with uh, his uh, interventions and engagement with uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois. Let's listen in. And now let's go back to Dr. Herbert Apfager. Herbert? Yes. You're on. Yes, Bill, <laughs> I'm on. Go okay. Uh, what, you know, people are just fascinated about Du Bois, and do you, what can you tell us about his method of work, his method of research and writing? 
that's a very interesting uh, question. Uh, he was uh, very diligent. Uh, he uh, was quite modest. Uh, he would uh, seek help. Uh, he would uh, send uh, chapters and uh, pages to various uh, friends and colleagues and professors uh, for their comments. Uh, he was quick to make changes in his manuscript, sometimes uh, uh, to the uh, panic of the publishers. They would plead with him to stop. That's enough. Uh, but he was a perfectionist. Uh, he, uh, very important with Du Bois was his health. This is very important. He lived to 95, you know. And uh, he uh, was seriously sick only once. It was during World War I, I think it was 1918, when he had one kidney removed. At that time, a very serious operation. It still is, but then it was very serious. Uh, he uh, did uh, survive, obviously. But he was a man who lived to be 95 years old and uh, had one kidney. <laughs> Uh, he uh, uh, went for a physical examination every six months. There was some longevity institute then in New York. I don't know whether it still exists. And he faithfully attended every six months. He finally, uh, at one period, uh, he was probably in his very late 80s, and he went for this examination, and the folks there told him that there was nothing they could do for him anymore. And that uh, the visit was unnecessary, and he stopped. But he took very careful care of his wealth, of his health. He tried uh, to retire by 10 o'clock at night. Uh, he was quite insistent on that. He slept well, I know, he told me so. Um, and uh, he worked uh, furiously. He, he was committed. Uh, he knew... Uh, what he was, he understood his power and his genius. He understood that, and uh, it was very important to him to keep well, keep at work, and to contribute. Of course, uh, as you know, he edited uh, various magazines, and finally uh, he helped found the NAACP, and he, he uh, founded Crisis, and he edited it until 1935, I believe from 1910 on, and uh, at one point it had a circulation of 100,000, by the way. Uh, so it was a very important uh, magazine, and he lectured very widely. He was uh, very militant. He was very heroic. He would uh, travel in the South in his own uh, Oldsmobile. Uh, he'd carry overalls, and he carried his food with him. Uh, he would relieve himself uh, very often in the woods. Being black, he couldn't go into a restaurant. Uh, he would carry a sandwich with him, and uh, he'd carry on the battle. He'd speak at uh, black uh, churches, black universities. Uh, by the way, the band uh, Du Bois had a uh, pistol. He had a permit for a pistol. He kept it uh, in good order. Did he carry it? Uh, 
I don't believe he carried it. That's a good question. He may have when he was in the South. He certainly had it. I know he had it. And he had it in his uh, living quarters. Whether he carried it or not, I don't know. He had a permit for it. Do you? I know that uh, he had, uh, he kept it, you know, well oiled. He took care of it. Uh, he was fearless. He had encounters in the South as a black man and lived through them. Uh, he, of course, as I'm sure you know, taught in Georgia for many years. And he did research for the Department of Agriculture, especially in Virginia and in Alabama. Uh, by the way, one of his studies on sharecropping in Alabama, which he devoted many, many months, uh, was finally destroyed in Washington. He was terribly upset about that. But that's a document that has disappeared. They destroyed it. Do you have any sense? I know we all know that he was working on this giant encyclopedia in Ghana yes. when he died. Yes. Do you have any sense that there were other particular works he wanted to write or items that he had not finished? No, I don't think so. He had done... What he wanted to do? No, he had uh, done his uh, collection of writings, uh, which was published... Uh, was originally uh, published in uh, East Germany, the DDR. Uh, you know about that? It's a paperback uh, book. At the moment, the name the name No, I, I, I don't, you don't know. know that. Oh. Uh, he uh, he worked on that here before he went to Africa, and he mailed it uh, to uh, Berlin. But it was never received. It probably was intercepted by the post office here. Uh, so when he went to London, no, he, he did it over again. He did it over again. Oops, just a minute. Oh. Yes, Faye tells me the title. She knows uh, much no, more I than I do. You have it working today, okay. ABC of color. Oh, yes, yes, ABC I have that. Uh, he did it over. But this time he took it with him when he went to Europe in order to visit uh, Ghana. So he had it and uh, posted it in London. And they got it in Berlin, and the book was published. It came out in paper uh, shortly before he died. He was uh, ill, but uh, the publisher sent him 20 or 30 copies. Shirley showed him the book, and she told me he was delighted with it when he was he was then 95. That's his last work. It's a collection of some, it's a selection. Right. And collection of some things that he did, mostly in the crisis. That's done, uh, it was, of course, his uh, autobiographical three-volume novel, which I'm sure you know, right. Rose of Color, Mansart. He wrote that when he was in his very late 80s, early 90. It's a three-volume work. Uh, he tried to get it published, and uh, most of the publishers didn't even ask, answer him. He got a response on a postcard from Harper, and he once showed me the postcard, which was the kind of thing they send to beginners. All right. And uh, he was near tears. He said, Herbert, this is what they uh, what they do. And I said, Doctor, if you'll permit me, uh, we will publish it. 
I was then editing uh, Masses of Mainstream, a monthly magazine. And we occasionally published books. For instance, we were the first publishers of Neruda in English. Uh, so uh, I said, if you'll allow it, we will publish it. We did. We published the three volumes, which I edited. Uh, we published, I think, 3,500 copies, something like that. It sold very well. Uh, the proofreading is poor. I must confess, I was the proofreader. And uh, I was overburdened with work, uh, and I must regret that. But nevertheless, the, the three volumes are there. Uh, on, it's called Man's Art. Man's Art. And it's an autobiographical novel. It's a very significant book. And he wrote that in his late 80s. All right. Let me ask you, you this. You, you've recently brought out a, a book, Anti-Racism in United States History. Yes. That I think is a very important book. I do. Uh, how do you think Du Bois would have responded to that? What was his views on the subject? Well, I don't, I, I don't like uh, to, to do that. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I would uh, say this. That Du Bois was aware that racism was by no means universal among white people. He knew that. And of course, he's one of the founders of the NAACP, which was a black-white organization, as you know. Uh, he had very close relationships with Barry White Ovington, whom he admired, and uh, Oswald Garrison Willard, who he didn't accept especially admire, but he worked with him. So, uh, and of course, in the NAACP, uh, this was a black-white organization. And uh, in his own writings, in the crisis and elsewhere, uh, he never failed to point to significant acts by white people in opposition to the atrocity of racism. Uh, I would add... Uh, what is quite important. Uh, du Bois was advanced in many, many things. He was also advanced on what we used to call the woman question. Uh, du Bois was uh, one of the only men, one of the, one of the only male people who participated in the women's suffrage meetings. When they'd have public meetings, there'd be one man on the platform and it was Du Bois. Uh, this is a, a salient feature of his life which has tended to be ignored in various work. This is very important to him. Uh, he uh, acted, behaved, and thought of women as people. Uh, that's, that's an important feature of, of Du Bois. He was amazing in all respects. What, what was his, given all of the racism that he suffered in, in that postcard incident you mentioned from a Harper publisher, you know, tr treating him in, in so tri trivial a way, did he, he have hope? Did he have hope that uh, people could get it together, that the Grand Alliance would rise and defeat racism? Well, he never gave up. And uh, as I say, he uh, associated freely with white people. He, his choice of me as the editor of his work, uh, to which, of course, Shirley agreed, uh, 
created something of a stir. Uh, I was told about this, and Shirley told me about it. And I personally know that uh, there was some resentment, uh, since, of course, I'm white. And also, by the way, there was some anti-Semitism, because I'm Jewish. Uh, but uh, he uh, uh, shunted these things off as the, uh, as the monstrosities they were. Uh, he, I once, as a matter of fact, because of my own notoriety in terms of my politics and my difficulty in getting a publisher to uh, issue his uh, correspondence, I had great difficulty. It took me years. That's a story in itself. I once suggested to him that in view of the fact that uh, it was very difficult to publish him and apparently impossible to publish him edited by Apteka, that maybe he should get another editor. And he said, no. He said, no, I want you to edit it. And he added with his remarkable clairvoyance, he said, Herbert, uh, please keep at it. I want you to edit it, and the time will come. I remember this vividly. The time will come when it will be possible uh, to get this published. Now, this took about 20 years, something like that, 15 years. And finally, uh, there was some interest, in the, by the way, in the New York Times. And one of their people came to visit us. And uh, I thought it uh, was going to be done, multi-volumed, uh, the works of Du Bois, but uh, they didn't do it. Uh, I had a similar experience with Lippincott. Uh, I got to the point of, uh, of preparing volume one and uh, I thought it was all settled, but it wasn't, and they pulled out. Apparently, once it reached the top somewhere, it was stopped. But um, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but there was a marvelous woman editor of the, of the press of the University of Massachusetts, Leon Stein, who, by the way, is living. And this was very unusual then to have a woman chief editor of a university press. Well, she was, and she was an amazing woman, and is an amazing woman. How we came together, I'm not now certain, right, holding the telephone. But uh, Herbert, we're, we're running out of, out of time. Yes. And I, I just wanted to give you uh, a, a final question I have here. Okay. Uh, By the way, I just want to say Leon Stein uh, persevered, and we published the correspondence of Du Bois and so on. Okay. And she was remarkable. Okay, go ahead. Uh, du Bois, yourself, others of us who have labored in this field, have evidently based an awful lot on a truthful scholarship. In other words, that's getting the truth out can do a lot to bring us together, to set us all free. You want to respond to that? Well, I, I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> to, to this idea I've devoted my life. Uh, I believe that, uh, that the truth will make us free. And uh, that uh, those who deny freedom 
therefore deny truth, distort truth, and propagandize otherwise. This is the reality of racism. This is the reality of falsehood in general. And uh, I think that uh, there's no better uh, purpose in life than uh, trying to uh, overcome this, to defeat this in whatever way one can. And I know in my own life, I've devoted myself to this effort in terms of uh, racism. That's my reply. What, what else is there in life yeah. <laughs> except the love of somebody or raising a child? But uh, there is nothing to life except uh, uh, doing something that you think is worthwhile, trying to do it, making the human condition better. There's nothing else. Well, you, you couldn't have put it better. And on that note, we're going to have to end. And Herbert Apteka, thank you so much for being on with us at such length. If I can ever have you on again, I will. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back. And that was an interview of, by William Lauren Katz of uh, Herbert Apteka, uh, discussing in detail some aspects of Apteka's involvement with uh, W.D. Du Bois uh, being his literary executor and uh, how uh, his work as a scholar intersected uh, with uh, that of Dr. W.D. Du Bois. We are uh, commemorating African American History Month uh, 2023. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. Today is Sunday. February the 5th, uh, 2023, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Listen to me while I warn. Oh, God. Oh, 
you better get wise and realize the truth. Keep the home fires burning for your flaming youth. You can't hold the man you love. Don't cry when it's At this time, uh, we would like to thank 
the staff of NOMO, the Afro-American Studies Center, the Black Students' Union, ASUCLA, Associate Student Speakers Bureau, Student Legislative Council, Graduate Student Association, University Religious Conference for making uh, this great event possible. Now I'd like to introduce Brother Alan Brooks, Editor-in-Chief of NOMO. I want to first of all welcome all of my sisters and brothers to this very special occasion. I want to welcome members of the FBI, the CIA, representatives of Martha and John Mitchell, to whom Mrs. Du Bois has become a tremendous pain. And I want to thank most of you. I want to thank most of all you people for coming. I had the good fortune Sunday of last week to go to San Francisco to hear what, in my opinion, was the most dynamic, the most powerful message that I've ever been exposed to in my lifetime. That message came from Mrs. Du Bois. I thought upon hearing it that it was something that should be shared with the people in Southern California, both black and white. And with that in mind, I set about putting the wheels in motion so that we could share Mrs. Du Bois with you. For those of you who are not aware of who she is, she is the wife of the late Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, and in her own right, an intellectual and a scholar. It is my pleasure at this time to bring to you Mrs. Shirley Graham Du Bois. Brother Chairman, let me say, um, Madam Chairman, Goodness, I must not overlook the lady. Uh, I want to say that I'm very happy to be here. I had the pleasure of driving yesterday from San Francisco to Palo Alto, where I spoke at Stanford University. And then I took a plane down to Santa Barbara, where I met with a beautiful audience in Santa Barbara, and then this morning I have driven from Santa Barbara up here to Los Angeles. You have such a beautiful country. I, I, I couldn't help, as we drove along through these marvelous valleys and hills, to think about the song, America the Beautiful. It is a beautiful land. It is a wonderful land with lots of good, generous-hearted, earnest people in it. Now, we're going to address ourselves this morning to the, my mission in coming to you from Africa, from the Middle East, 
and from other places where I've been, is to talk about peace with justice. Peace with justice. Because there can be no peace, really, either in this land or in other lands, until there is justice. There can be no stopping of the struggles of people who have been oppressed, who have been dispossessed, and who have suffered from exploitation. They are not going to lie down and accept any piece of the grave. They don't want that. We are living in an era of liberation. And this is true in every continent and every land in this world. Whether it is South America or North America, whether it is Africa, whether it is Asia, the Middle East, wherever it is, people say we're going to be free. We are not going to be exploited. We are not going to live under imperialist colonialism any longer. <laughs> My father was a Methodist preacher. And there were several texts which were his favorites, which have remained my favorites too. And one of them was, Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you realize that one of the great aims of all those who would enslave, or who are enslaving, is to keep the truth away from them? This is a tactic, a well-known tactic. Keep the truth out. Don't let the people know. You are here in a great institution, a very great institution of learning. And you can learn so much in this institution of learning. And I rejoice to see these students, to meet with you, and to know that you are taking advantage of the facilities of this great university, to know that these facilities are open to you. And I particularly uh, congratulate the black students and their groups who have seen to it that they have a department of black studies here in this university. There were no departments of black studies in universities when I went to school in the United States. And I was supposed to get a very good education. But I didn't know, for instance, that Egypt was part of Africa. Nobody ever told me that. Where was Egypt? Well, I really don't know. If you're really going to pin me down, I don't know just where we thought Egypt was. But it was some vague place, vaguely connected with Europe, vaguely connected with the civilizations of Europe, you see, since the Western civilization arose in the valley of the Nile, which is Egypt, and since the valley of the Nile is in Africa, and since the first 
pharaohs were what would be known in this world today as blacks or Negroes, it just did not behoove Western education to talk about Egypt being Africa. But I have a... I've got a kind of thing about that point, that Egypt is Africa. I live there, and I see these evidences all around me every day. I have been away for almost 10 years, but as I come back, it's almost as if I never left home, both in all sorts of ways. However, there are some new things here, and one of them is this growing consciousness of black people, the growing consciousness and belief in themselves, the growing consciousness in their own dignity and in their own traditions and in their own background. You see, years ago, when my husband, almost 70 years ago now, began to write Souls of Black Folk, Gifts of Black Folk, Black Folk Now and Then, Black Reconstruction, his use of this constant word black, considered, he was considered a little eccentric, a little off. Why is he always pushing black? You see, it's taken pretty near 50 years for you to catch up with the fact that black was important. <laughs> as I say, returning after nearly 10 years, it is as if I never left home. And one reason is that I have been living for these 10 years in Ghana, in the People's Republic of China, in Egypt, and from Ghana as a base in Africa, I have had occasion to travel very widely in Africa, or most places in Africa, of course, excluding South Africa. They wouldn't let me in there either. Uh, from China, I have been in Pakistan and Cambodia. From Egypt, I have traveled in other countries, Islamic countries in Africa, the Sudan, and in other countries of the Middle East. And it is remarkable that in none of these countries did I feel like a stranger or a foreigner. Why? Because all of these people had suffered and were suffering the same kinds of discrimination. They knew the hand of the exploiter in all of these places. They were part of the people who had been exploited through the ages. And I could instantly, they accepted me coming from a people in this continent who had been exploited, who had been enslaved. They accepted me as a sister in all of these various places. And I have felt at home among these people. 
reminding me very vividly of Langston Hughes' very beautiful poem, which he's dedicated to my husband many years ago. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo, and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised pyramids above it, and I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. We are united in this world by these mighty rivers that flow through these many, many great lands upon which where we have been sometimes in history and where our ancestors came from, we are united with all of them. Now, uh, ten years ago, darker peoples everywhere and their friends was rejoicing because of the liberation of Africa. The United Nations declared 1960 the year of Africa because so many independent African states joined that body that year. And joyous independent celebrations were held throughout Africa. Then in May 1963, at Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, came the first great African summit conference. I was there. It was a magnificent pageantry of color and eloquence and passionate speeches. I, we hailed the organization of the, of the African unity. The Charter of African Unity was signed there. And we wrote about it, how wonderful it was. I was one of the many people who wrote about how wonderful this was. I know now that much that happened at that summit conference was really very foolish and very naive. Why do I say that? For how sensible was it to stand up and proclaim our intentions to the world of imperialists, colonialists, neo-colonialists, plunderers and thieves when we did not have the power to rebuild Africa in our modern world. We boasted at that conference of an independent, united Africa, a strong, bountiful Africa, we told of the marvelous resources of this continent, of how we were going to take them and use them for the development of our own people, how we were going to be able to invite the children of Africa, wherever they were, to come back and share in the riches of this very, very rich continent, beautiful continent. We got up there and told all of our plans. And before the ink on that charter was dry, the enemies of Africa had united to bring us down. 
And in a short time, wave after wave of coup d'etats swept across the continent, and country after country fell under the man's hammer. Imperialists, neo-colonialists, call them what you will, whether they come from west or east or north or south, they are the same greedy exploiters. Had my generation learned so much that we thought we would liberate Africa by cooperating with the age-old exploiters of that, of, of that continent, they who had grown fat and sleek and prosperous had no, never will have, and, and, uh, and, and have not now any intention of retreating into their predominantly cold, gray fastness of their northwestern zones. They love our African sunshine, our beautiful broad rivers, our bright gold, our sparkling diamonds, our copper, magnesia, bauxite, and oil. They do not love Africans or the children of Africa, wherever they are. Among the various decisions of the Western world which have affected the lives and destinies of Afro-Asians, the non-whites, the peoples of the so-called third world, none have revealed more clearly the very essence of Western racism, nor demonstrated more conclusively the capacity of the Western world to transform, translate, and legitimatize its basic power thrust under the cloak of international law and morality. Nothing demonstrates it more clearly than two decisions which were reached in London, one in 1909, the other in 1917. The first known as the South African Act of Union, and the second, the Belfort Declaration. South Africa and Palestine, land some 3,500 miles apart, but each the concern of the same imperialist interest, each sacrificed in the name of Western peoples and British empire building, and the details of the sacrifice arranged by the same statesman. In both cases, a perceived injustice committed by Western powers against the Jew on one hand and the Afrikaner on the other was to be atoned for at the expense of those judged too uncivilized, too primitive, too backward to establish an equal moral claim. In both cases, the self-identification of the Africana and Jew as a chosen people, the inheritors of promised land, was explicitly and implicitly accepted by first Great Britain and subsequently by the bulk of the Western world as proof of its own capacity for tolerance. In each case, it was for the natives a crime to protest or to give any resistance. It was treasonable and illegal. It violated the canons of international morality. It was in 1900 at the first racist conference meeting in London 
that W.E.B. Du Bois enunciated that oft-repeated but little-heeded warning. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. The relation of the darker peoples to the lighter races of men in Asia, in Africa, in America, and in the islands of the sea. It must be noted that he was speaking of the world, not simply of America. This conference met during the Anglo-Boer War of 1899-1902, and this body urged Great Britain to seize the opportunity resulting from the imminent victory of Great Britain over the Boer settlers in South Africa to guarantee the human and political rights of the African majority. Chamberlain did affirm that his, Her Majesty's government will not overlook the interests and the welfare of the native races. Yet, when the Boer forces lay prostrate and their theories of race supremacy, slavery, and chosen people mythology appeared in disrepute, British liberal and humanitarian sentiment saved the situation for the defeated white minority. And in 1909, when the Act of Union was signed, it was hailed as a great triumph of liberal magnanimity. Since it conferred upon the white minority population the capacity to rule without impediment or any necessity to respect the rights of the indigenous population who were excluded from all governmental bodies. Throughout the entire history of the Union, Council urged the Africans not to put forth any extreme demands, since this would only play into the hands of the reactionaries. And that while the races had no scruples about setting forth extreme demands, compromise was always in favor of the whites. Militant African organizations and leadership was rejected in favor of compromise, and in the end, all was lost. At this time, Lord Belford, whose name comes in later, said, the only glimmer of hope of dealing successfully with the real race problem in South Africa is not to attempt to meddle with it ourselves, but having made this union parliament to trust the men of like way of thinking as ourselves to rise to the occasion. Harold Wilson some years later, refusing to use any force in Rhodesia on the basis that they, these people of Ian Smith's regime, were kith and kin. And therefore, while Great Britain can rush ships and parachutes across the ocean to our little Anguilla, to Bermuda, and to any other spot in the world where non-whites lift their heads, they could do nothing at all to prevent 200,000 whites in Rhodesia from taking over and practically enslaving the millions of blacks in that country. The Pan-African Congress of 1923 protested against what was happening in Southern Africa and said, what more paradoxical figure today confronts the world than the official head of that state, Smuts, build, trying to build peace and goodwill in Europe by standing on the necks and hearts of millions of Africans. 
in Cape Town, the legitimate capital of fascist South Africa, the legislative capital, stands a giant statue of Cecil John Rhodes with his right hand prophetically pointing northward. Rhodes was the chief architect of British colonialism in Southern Africa, and his dream was to colonize Africa for the British from the Cape to the Mediterranean, fighting and wiping out everything in their past his cohorts managed to push northward 2,000 miles. They were still a long ways from the Mediterranean, but they had come into rich, fertile lands and were bogged down in the attempt to wipe out the Zimbabwe people. When finally they managed to push them back into the jungle, they settled there and they called the land Rhodesia after its founder. That's like, you know, Columbus discovering America. <laughs> now, this type of wide-open imperialist takeover is no longer possible in the 20th century. It's on a par with that arch-imperialist Disraeli making a gift of the Suez Canal to Queen Victoria and thereby gaining unprecedented honors for himself in the court of King James. But since fighting two world wars among themselves with our help, primarily for the possession of the vast resources of lands belonging to non-white peoples, the whites have found themselves confronted with an increasing problem. The aftermath of these two world wars on dark peoples was unexpected. During the course of their fighting among themselves, they had spoken eloquently about freedom, about democracy, about courage, and about free people. And suddenly, these same words were being hurled at them from all over the world. And after all his efforts, the man saw the riches of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East slipping right out of his hands. Fast and furiously, he worked out new devices to shut off such disastrous possibilities. In Africa, he granted independence here and there. After insisting on helping to write the new constitution. He attended all the independent celebrations. And he made great speeches, I never will forget, seated at the uh, banquet table when uh, Nkuma was being inaugurated president of Ghana. And the British representative of the Queen made some remarks something like this. Now we shall march forward shoulder to shoulder, our brothers in this new republic and in members of the British Commonwealth, we will go forward together to higher places of prosperity and advantage for all our peoples. Seated beside me was a half-asleep Ghanaian minister, one of the new ministers. Now, he was half asleep because they'd been working for day and night on these celebrations. He really hadn't had much chance to sleep. 
do for, for many hours. But he heard this man, and he looked up and said, Boy, well, that's the first time I heard that we was walking shoulder to shoulder. Speaking at a gathering of African foreign ministers meeting in Addis Ababa last fall, Mr. Dialitelli, Secretary General of the OAU, said that in the Arab-Israeli conflict, quote, fraternity and solidarity with the United Arab Republic must not falter. He warned, none of our African states are safe from similar aggression. It is the duty of all African countries to condemn unreservedly the aggression of foreign troops, to call for their unconditional withdrawal from occupied territories. And the Egyptian minister, El Sayed Mohammed Fayyad, told the conference, your brethren in the northern part of the continent shoulder the honor and responsibility of liberating an occupied part of the territory of a sister African country from imperialist aggression, which has been condemned by the international community. Until very recently, even in African countries, the struggle now being waged in this part of the continent has been shunted aside merely as a Middle East conflict, removed from the liberation struggles of Africa. For their own good reasons, divide and conquer. This is the way it is always presented in the Western press and radio. The situation became clearer and took on new meaning with a decisive revolution which took place in Libya one year ago last September. I want to talk just for a minute about Libya, an African country, a country in the north, northern section on the shores of the Mediterranean. It had been an Italian colony, and the Italian government had sent their overflow of people into Libya. They had taken over land there and settled their people on this land. This was some years ago. Then it was taken over in for so far as everything was concerned, by Great Britain. Uh, there was a king there, but this uh, king um, really didn't have much to say one way or the other. Uh, he couldn't because his country was an occupied country. Oil had been discovered in Libya just a few years ago, very, very rich oil wells, so that Libya was producing great wealth, and his people remained very, very poor. The people were not at all enjoying any of this wealth. Tourists came there, and to Tripoli, and to the beautiful uh, beaches of Libya. And they were put up at great hotels, owned and operated by Europeans and Americans. And they spent their money there with the Europeans and Americans. Big business from Great Britain, big business from America, had their headquarters in Libya. 
and the people of Libya remained very, very poor, very poor. One day in September last year, year ago this September, a handful of young men, the oldest was not yet 28, seized power in Libya. And I want to tell you that they seized power. I want to emphasize that. They had never held a mass meeting. They had never had a television or radio broadcast. They had never distributed a pamphlet. They had never made a, an appeal to anybody. They had never opened their mouths to anybody except to these chosen few handful of young men who on that morning seized power. The Western press, in, well, in Cairo, I heard BBC say that there was a little trouble in Libya. <laughs> but it would pass. The king was in Turkey, but he would hurry back. And uh, he was there in well, they said convalescing, you know, resting and enjoying his boundless wealth. Uh, but they didn't exactly, it, it couldn't be very serious. You see, Great Britain had its, the biggest military base that it had was in Libya. The biggest American base was also in Libya. Well, it, so it couldn't be anything particular. Well... Then we heard that the king had changed his mind about returning to Libya. He never did return to Libya, and he signed some papers of abdication. And then the next thing we heard was that the British and American bases had been told to get off of Libyan soil. They didn't throw them off overnight. They couldn't because, my goodness, they had every kind of equipment that you ever heard of, both of them there. They had planes and parachuters, and uh, their soldiers had miles and miles of sandy planes to practice on, and their parachuters would go out and practice over the deserts. They had unlimited equipment, both countries. It was interesting that after they had been given a certain amount of time to leave, that a black commander of a great United States military setup showed up in Libya. And he was made commander of Wheeler's base, the highest ranking such officer I've heard of. I don't know whether or not it was thought that this black brother would be able to talk to these little ignorant people in Libya and show them the error their ways or not. I don't know that. I don't know that at all. All I know is that when he arrived, he was told how many weeks they had to get out. 
and they got. Great Britain is still looking for some place to settle down in because you do know that no country in Europe is going to let Great Britain have any military base on their soil. Not a country in Europe is going to allow that. And England, Great Britain, is too small for any such kind of base. And anyhow, Great Britain's got so much trouble with the Irish in Ireland that they got a war on their hands right inside the British Isles. So they don't dare set down any more military equipment for fear it might be captured by the Irish. <laughs> so the British are out looking for another base. Now they've decided that they're going to remain east of Suez. The last government has said that they're going to leave east of Suez. Now they've decided that they're going to have to remain east of Suez. I make a prophecy. They're still going to leave east of Suez. You see, people have just decided that they've got to be free. Now let me say a word about this Belfort Declaration. Because I, oh, I do want to tell you one thing, though, before I leave Libya. Wheeler's base has been renamed. It is now called Uqbad bin Nafa. I'll tell you who Uqbad bin Nafa was. He was a black commander of Islamic forces that swept across the northern Africa and drove the Roman legions off of African soil and went up into Spain. He was a black African commander, and Wheeler's base is now named after a black commander, after Benaka. before and speaking in some other places I wanted to make it very clear that the enemy across the Suez Canal from Egypt is not an enemy because it is a Jewish settlement not at all it is an enemy because it is an imperialist white supremacist base. That's why it's an enemy. And I want you to understand that when you hear about the planes and you hear about the commando forces crossing the Suez Canal, to know that our forces have not dropped one bomb on any Israeli soil. Anything that they have dropped, any commanding forces that they have in crossing the Suez Canal, they're still in Africa. They're still in Egypt. They have been fighting a defense war to drive invaders off their land. They have not been fighting an aggressive war. Up to this date, they haven't. 
the, this must be understood. I have visited in Cairo a synagogue, a synagogue which is said to have been founded by the prophet Aaron. You see, when, and they said it's been rebuilt and built over and over and over down through these hundreds of years, thousands of years, really. You see, when Moses led the children of Israel, this is what I was told by the rabbi of this synagogue, when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, not all of them wanted to go, just like our folks. Just like our folks, you know. And not all of us follow nobody. So it seems that the children of Israel didn't all want to follow Moses. And they decided they wanted to stay in Egypt. And so Aaron, the story is, set up this synagogue. This area, which is now incorporated into Cairo, of course Cairo wasn't there when this happened, it was a small village, not so very far from the pyramids. Uh, when this area, which is now part of Cairo, is still a predominantly Jewish community. They have their kosher shops and all other things that you see in a predominantly Jewish community, and there has never been a pogrom in Egypt. Never. Never down to the years. I will say something else about Egypt. Many of you may have heard the word, as I'm sure I first heard it, when I went to Sunday school and I got my picture card and I learned about how the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph and told him to arise and take the child Jesus and his mother and flee into Egypt because Herod was going to kill the child if he could find him. And then, then this is in the first chapter of Matthew. Then it is said that Joseph arose and he took the child and they traveled into Egypt. And the angel of the Lord told him further, to remain in Egypt until I shall tell you so that the prophecy might be fulfilled out of Egypt have I called my son. Now you know, I think that this is one of the most cogent reasons why the white Christian world he does not want to say that Egypt is Africa. How could they say that their Christ had to be taken to Africa to escape death? How could they acknowledge that according to the prophets, Christ should be called from Africa to save the world, to save them. How could they acknowledge this? I think it's one of the very important reasons why Egypt was sort of hung up there someplace dangling in midair 
and never talked about as being Africa. I, I'm quite sure it is one of the very important reasons. It is, but I, I'm trying to say that there, the, Egypt has, is traditionally, a place of refuge where people have come from persecution and been received generously. As a matter of fact, that's where King Idris is right now. He's in Egypt. He asked for refuge in Egypt, and Egypt granted him refuge. The children and the widow of Patrice Lumumba have lived in Egypt ever since Patrice Lumumba was killed. The children, the boys, are being educated in the schools in Egypt. They have found homes and refuge in Egypt. In Egypt, now that Ghana is wiped out as a real African state, the main sources, the main headquarters of the African freedom fighters is in Cairo and Dar es Salaam. This is why I know so many people from various parts of Africa. If I live in Egypt, there are refugees there from South Africa, from West Africa, from, uh, from, uh, from all of these places, from Angola, from Mozambique. They don't stay there long as a rule because those people get back in the front lines. They come to rest. They come to, to, to communicate, to reach other people, and then they go back to the front lines to fight for their liberation. This is what they're doing. But Egypt is giving this kind of refuge to many, many peoples, and to particularly those in Africa who are refugees. As a matter of fact, when Nkrumah, when the coup came in Ghana, not by the Ghanaian people, everybody who had been taking a really active part in the development of Ghana under Nkrumah was arrested. I was the director of television and I was arrested. My brother, the brother who's in this audience today, and a lawyer from New York came out there to help me and I eventually managed to get away. But I wanted to remain in Africa. I felt that I was needed in Africa. And I felt that I needed Africa. So I went to Egypt. And this has been my residence ever since. Although I've been to a great many other places. But I always come home to Cairo. And I am made welcome, completely welcome in that country. I want to say in closing, because I do want you to have lots of time for questions. I have been stressing the fact 
that Egypt is Africa. There's a lot more that could be said. I did say a lot more. I have two articles in the Black Scholar, which I recommend, uh, in the May issue and the September issue. I have articles which I said Egypt is Africa. I would recommend that you read these articles for proof, for the proof which is offered there. Read them. But why do I stress that Egypt is Africa? What difference does it make to black or white Americans? I stress it. I stress this fact because the dominant drive behind black movements in the world today, within the United States as elsewhere, is the determination of black peoples to assert themselves, to be themselves, to be proud of themselves, to walk on this earth with dignity. It is the determination to create such conditions that every black child may look at himself in the mirror and say with pride, I am black and beautiful. I have a heritage. I have traditions. I have a past. I have a history. My people have not only joined and built this country with their sweat and blood, bearing the heaviest burdens in the heat of the day, in the development, and in the, the very, the, the, the falling of the forest and the digging in the mines, my people have borne this, but they have also given science, learning, art came from the valley of the Nile. And black there, black men first lifted their eyes to the stars and were able to read the course of the stars in the horizon. Let the black child be able to say that to himself. I stress this fact because over and above the crime of plundering Africa of its wealth, over and above the crime of killing and enslaving its peoples, was the white man's robbing of black peoples of their past, of their history, of their tradition, of brainwashing their minds, of shaming them, that they no longer expose their beautiful black bodies to the sun and to bathe in their beautiful broad streams, but they must cover their nakedness with these rags out of missionary barrels, these cast off. They must wear these things in order to be decent. And they have taught black children in Africa and black children in Mississippi to sing, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. These are more monstrous crimes even than the robbing of the material riches of this continent. The dominant drive of black movements today is not integration. It is not to be like somebody else, to imitate somebody else, but rather to be the best of himself. Nor does this mean to hate others, nor to insist on separation from others, because we are in this world together. 
and we can't any of us just shoot off to the moon and be by ourselves. I haven't heard of anybody wanting to do that. It means in the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, I believe in pride of race and lineage and self. In pride of self so deep as to scorn injustices to other selves. In pride of lineage so great as to despise no man's father. In pride of race so chivalrous as neither to offer bastardy to the weak nor beg wedlock of the strong, knowing that men may be brothers indeed, even though they be not brothers-in-law. In Africa, we do not speak of the Arab hordes who pillaged, devastated, and enslaved the continent. Much of Western history would have you believe that Arabs started the slave trade in Africa, that Arabs were and always will be the enemies of Africans. Let us for a moment consider the truth about this. First, last night in Santa Barbara, I said a few words about democracy, and I'm going to repeat them here. Where did democracy originate? in Athens. That's the word, limos, Greek word, in Athens. And what was the democracy of Athens? It was like a pyramid. The bottom slaves, the big base slaves, not black slaves, slaves from any place, slaves from any captured people. Some black slaves, I don't doubt, but slaves. This was the great bottom base and then the next section was workers. Workers. And at the very top of the pinnacle of this pyramid was a few people who ruled everybody else. And that was the beginning of democracy. That was the original of the word. That was the way it was in 300, 400 B.C., I ask if it's changed so much. Has it? I ask you. I'm not going to say. Think it over. Has it changed? I know that when people, good people in many instances, come from this country and they go into other parts of the world and they want to bring them democracy, 99 times out of 100, the people, wherever they are, they don't have to be in Africa. They can be in Europe or Asia or Asia Minor, any place else. They say, we don't want it. You keep it. We don't want it around us. But think about the beginning of the whole world. The word democracy. And whether or not it really has changed. That's not what I started out to say. I wanted to say that by the beginning of the 7th century, Egypt and all Asia Minor and North Africa was in the grim grasp of the Romano-Byzantine Empire. The early... Oh, here's something. Egypt was the first Christian nation in the world. Why? Largely because 
The people, the very common, ordinary people, remembered this child, Jesus. They had heard the prophecies from Mary and Joseph. And while there weren't any radios and there weren't any big newspapers circulating in the area, the fishermen in the Red Sea and the camel drivers that crossed the desert brought news of how this same young man was followed by great crowds in Palestine and in Judea and in Jerusalem. And they heard how he was crucified by the mobs and how the Romans turned him over to this fanatical mob. They heard all of this because the Romans were at this time the real rulers in Jerusalem. Everybody else was subservient. The Roman Empire had stretched all along here. The peoples in Egypt, therefore, when again referring to the Bible, to Corinthians, you read about how Paul and Mark preached in the marketplace of Alexandria. And then when Paul went on to Cyprus, Mark remained and he went up into Egypt, into northern, middle parts of Egypt. It is said that he was in this little village where Jesus and Mary and Joseph had stayed because they had come to this village where this synagogue was. They had been told that there was a Jewish settlement and this is where they had made their way to for complete safety. So Mark taught and preached to the common people of this all up and down this valley. When he later returned to Alexandria, which was overrun then by the Byzantines and by all kinds of riffraff from every place, he was killed by a mob. But when the some centuries, three centuries later, the Roman Empire accepted Christianity and the emperors declared themselves the head of the Christian church, whether it was the emperor in Rome or the emperor in Constantinople. They set out to destroy these apostolic churches in, the, in Asia Minor, in Macedonia, in Damascus, in Egypt, in Ethiopia, they set out to destroy these churches because these churches did not want to pay tribute to the Roman Empire. And this was part of the whole thing. This was part of, of, of the, 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 the kind of binding this empire together. And these early Christians were rebels against this kind of thing. They were trying to follow the simple teachings of Jesus Christ and his disciples. Well, these people in Rome and in Constantinople sent armies into these countries to wipe out these other Christians. And this is the beginning of the kind of plundering which has been done all over the world in the name of Christian churches. Welcome back.
and uh, we're listening to uh, a historic lecture by uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois that was delivered on November the 13th of uh, 1970 at the University of California at Los Angeles. And uh, this uh, lecture uh, being presented here today uh, as part and parcel of our African American uh, History Month um, month long uh, commemoration series. And uh, we're going to continue uh, these commemorations uh, for uh, the rest of the month of February. And uh, you're listening to the Pan African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, February the 5th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to uh, this special edition of the Pan African Journal. I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. We want to go back uh, to this recording of uh, the lecture uh, on uh, African history and uh, Pan-Africanism, anti-imperialism by uh, the legendary Shirley Graham Du Bois, who uh, was a writer, uh, artist, uh, public intellectual, activist, and organizer uh, who uh, was the second uh, wife of Dr. W.B. Du Bois, uh, who had preceded her in death uh, in Ghana on August the 28th, of 1963. In this lecture, she has discussed her time uh, in Ghana, working with the Convention People's Party government of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. She's also has discussed uh, working uh, with the uh, United Arab uh, Republic of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, and also talked about the uh, first year of the Libyan Jamahadiyya revolution uh, headed by Gaddafi and the Revolutionary Command Council on September 1st of 1969, uh, just um, a year after uh, that, uh, some 14 months after that historic revolution, which was also destroyed by U.S. imperialism in 2011, uh, as the same way in which Ghana had been destroyed in 1966. Let's go back uh, to listen uh, to uh, more of the remarks and uh, some of the question and answer periods uh, featuring uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois uh, on November 13, 1970 at UCLA in Los Angeles. It's a terrible thing, and this is probably the beginning of it. Well, in about the same time, though, in the Arabian Peninsula had arisen a young man named Muhammad who said that God had revealed certain truths to him. And he developed slowly, or not too slowly, a following. And these people moved into first Damascus and drove the Romans out. They moved into Jerusalem and drove the Romans out. Then they crossed over into Egypt. And when they crossed over into Egypt, they really weren't a very big band because uh, the Arabian Peninsula is is poorly, very sparsely settled. But they got into Egypt and they were joined by Egyptians. They They moved on across the northern part of Africa. All of this part was held by the Roman legions. All of this was part of the great Roman Empire, and this 
army, as it moved, it gathered forces in every country along the northern part of Africa. For instance, when they came to the ruins of Carthage, the old city of Carthage in Tunis, what is now Tunis, Carthage, which had been a great commercial center at one time, and which had been destroyed by the Roman legions with orders not to leave one stone upon another. Why? As revenge against black Hannibal of Carthage, who had led his army into Italy and who had captured the whole of, of the Italy, Italian peninsula and who had held it for a long time. Well, a hundred years after Hannibal was dead, they had to wait that long, these Roman legions, now strong, came back to Carthage. And they did destroy Carthage. They destroyed it. They didn't leave one stone upon another. They destroyed it utterly. And they burned women and children. They destroyed this city of this black Hannibal. When this army of Muhammad reached the place where Carthage has once been, it was as if from the very rocks and crevices and ruins of old Carthage that black men came out to join them, to drive out forever the Roman legions. And so it was, as they moved across Africa, the Berbers and the Moors and all the other black peoples came in until, the Arabs will tell you, that by the time they got to the Atlantic Ocean and were getting ready to cross the Straits into Spain, the complexion of that army had so changed that it couldn't be called an Arab army any longer because the Arabs were so much in the minority. It was the peoples of North Africa who swept across that strait. And before them stood a great rock, which they had to take first. And the commander of those who swept across that state, that strait, was a very powerful black commander. And they took this rock. His name was Tarakh. Tarakh. And they called in Arabic this rock the mountain of Tarakh. And it was Gabra Tarakh. Which, when it's translated and changed to English, becomes Gibraltar. The rock of Gibraltar was named after the black commander who took his forces into Spain in the year 711. This is a fact. This is not a fancy. What did they do? They brought into Europe a renaissance of art, of learning, of architecture. They brought new life into Spain, into southern France. They changed the music, the whole course of modern, of European music. Because before that time, they had the Gregorian chants, and they had the melodies 
weaving in and out. But these forces from North Africa brought rhythm. They had never had rhythm before. They changed the whole course. And out of these years developed what is called the Arab Golden Era. And during this time, the Timbuktu on the Niger River became a great center of learning and commerce. During this time, the city of Cairo was founded and the Al-Har University was opened. And this is the oldest continuing university in the world today. During this time, the libraries and centers of learning of Baghdad and in Spain and, became, and Alexandria became places where scholars from all over the world went to learn. This was what happened once when Arabs and Africans united. And this is what Europe has sworn would never happen again. It might and I ruined them. Certainly did change them. It changed the whole complexion of Southern Europe. Definitely. Next time you go to Spain or France or Italy or Sicily, you'll see the effects of this invasion all around you. All around you. Now, today, Egypt, Libya, Sudan, is the, these countries, these African countries, are defending the continent of Africa. They are defending the continent of Africa. And should these countries fail in their defense, the whole continent can be opened up to a new wave of dominance. But they will not fail. They will not fail. Cairo stands its back against the pyramids. These age-old pyramids. The Nile River has been flowing. Gamal Abdel Nasser said to a a reporter, not very long before his death, he asked him about the worry about Egypt and so forth. He said, we have been here for 7,000 years. We shall remain. We shall remain. And this is true. This is true. Gamal Abdel Nasser was the first indigenous Egyptian to be head of the state of, of Egypt in 2,000 years. For these hundreds of years, Europe has managed to keep some kind of descendant from some European family at the head of Egypt. For 2,000 years, since the Ptolemies, came into Egypt. Gamal Abdel Nasser was the first real Egyptian to head this state. 
the West hated Kamel Abdel Nasser. He took the Suez Canal away from them. They didn't like that. They didn't like that a little bit. He did very many great things to strengthen his people, to bring better ways of living to his people. He divided up the great lands that the feudal lords had held in the valley of the Nile, and he divided it up and gave it back in small portions to those who had been little more than slaves before he came to the head of the state. He built houses. He opened up industries. And he, with the help of the Soviet Union, he built this great Aswan Dam, which is already reclaiming thousands of square miles of desert land so as to feed without any difficulty the growing masses in Egypt, not only in Egypt, but in all the surrounding countries. Now, there's so much more that I would like to say. I will say just one thing. It was predicted that when Gamal Abdel Nasser died, and I'm sure even here you saw on television and read in your papers about this tremendous outpouring of grief of the common people of Egypt. This was no planned demonstration. It was the little men, the little women, the peasants, the, well, they are no more real peasants, but the farmers, the agricultural workers, the factory workers, who rushed out there in the streets in their thousands and took his body away from the former cottage and bore him to his grave on their shoulders, saying that he belongs to us. Nasser liberated us. Nasser gave us land. And the young people shouted, Nasser, you will live. We are all Nassers now. We will completely free our land. We will go forward to build a better society. We, the young men and women of Egypt, have proclaimed themselves. We are all Gamal Abdel Nasser. And this is the way they bore him to his grave. The West predicted that at his death there would be a tragic struggle for power in Egypt. And they named this one and that one and the other one. And how the whole country would be split with this tragic struggle for power. Well, they fooled him. There wasn't any tragic struggle for power. The executive committee met and they nominated the acting, the vice president, whom, who was vice president under Nasser, who had been with him in the, all the campaigns, who was one of the soldiers with him when they planned to seize the government from Farouk, one of the soldiers who was with him around the campfires as they, these young officers, planned to do it. This man, Sadat, had been with him through all these years, through the mistakes, 
through the struggles, because there were mistakes made, Nasser was not a governmental administrator. He didn't know anything about administering a country when he had to be head of the state. There just wasn't anybody else that stepped up uh, to do and to lead. He was just a young army officer. He didn't even want it. Well, in these 18 years, though, he grew in stature. He grew in understanding, not only of his own people, but of the world outside. He grew in understanding that freedom was indivisible, that it had to be for all the people. He grew in the, the determination to bring schools and housing and all kinds of things to his people. He grew in understanding what it meant to be an independent state economically as well as political. He understood that you can have a dozen national anthems, you can have a dozen national flags, but if your economy is controlled by outsiders, your country is not free. He knew this. Well, as I say, they said there was going to be a terrible struggle for power. I was spending that evening with Ozzie Davis and his wife, uh, Ruby Dee. And I had gone upstairs and I heard on the radio the announcements that Sadat was going to be, now was, had been nominated to be the president, the permanent president of Egypt. I went downstairs and I said to Ozzy, you know, Nasser was sort of lightish brown skin. His hair had a nice little crinkle in it, but put him under lights, you know, and of different kinds of on television, you know, he could come out pretty, pretty light. And you didn't see the crinkle in his hair. I've been in his home, so I saw the back of his head. <laughs> and it was there. And... I said, uh, you know, so they didn't have to talk about him being an indigenous Egyptian. Nobody did. But I said, Anwar Sadat, honey, is your color. No amount of lightning is going to change that. The message that I'm bringing to you, don't forget, is that the world wants peace with justice. That aggression is aggression, whether it is inside, whether you have neo-colonialism inside, or whether it's neo-colonialism outside, aggression is aggression. And there is another thing. People can be, bombs can be dropped on them. People can be tortured as they are being tortured in different parts of the world today. Great armies can march and planes can fly for a little while, but the people do not forget. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois speaking at the University of California, Los Angeles, on November 13th of 1970. 
speaking on African history uh, and, of course, the struggle against uh, imperialism. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. If you'd like to have access to this uh, program, the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Sunday, February the 5th, uh, 2023, as part of our African-American History Month series for 2023. Just go to our website uh, at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African News Wire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the uh, music of uh, Lee Morgan and uh, the Lee Morgan Sextet. And, of course, um, this is Abayomi Azikwe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 